The Fake Show is brought to you by the law firm of Hutchison & Stefan, Banger Brewing in downtown Las Vegas, Brew City Brand, and by Mr. Antenna. It's The Fake Show with Jim Tofty. It has been 20 years since The Sopranos made its earth-shaking debut on HBO, and now there is news of a prequel. To talk about that is Rolling Stone TV critic Ellen Sepinwall, whose book, The Sopranos Sessions, is the go-to guide, including an in-depth interview with Sopranos creator David Chase. I've got Ellen on the line right now. Hi. Ellen, good morning to you. How are you? I'm great. Thanks for having me, Jim. I'm a fan of yours, and, and it's really hard to believe, isn't it, that it's been 20 years since The Sopranos debuted? Oh, my God. I had so much more hair back then than I do uh, now. <laughs> this was groundbreaking. It's no surprise to anyone when I say that, but it, it was really kind of the beginning, wasn't it, of the incredible storytelling that we're still seeing on some TV networks to this day? Yeah, I mean, it's basically it's the most copied scripted TV show since I Love Lucy. If you look at Netflix, if you look at everything, Game of Thrones, The Walking Dead, Breaking Bad, Mad Men, Everything that's happened in scripted TV in the 20 years since The Sopranos debuted would not exist in this form without Tony. Tell me what you know about the upcoming prequel of The Sopranos. Uh, Well, it's called The Many Saints of Newark. It's uh, primarily, I think, going to be set in 1967, around the time of the Newark riots. It's going to be mainly about Christopher's father, Dickie Moltisanti, who was dead, you know, when he was a baby and not a character on the show. But it sounds like they're going to jump around in time a little bit because they just cast James Gandolfini's 19-year-old son, Michael, to play a young Tony. And Tony, in 1967, is a little kid. So I imagine we're going to move forward a little bit and get to see, you know, young Tony making his bones or something. And I think that's pretty amazing to have Jim's son in there, you know, stepping into his shoes for a little bit. I've seen pictures of him. It's obvious he looks quite a bit like his uh, late father, and uh, it's not like he hasn't acted before either. I, I think he was in Ocean's 8 and, and The Deuce as well. Yeah, he's, he's on The Deuce, and it's really it's kind of funny to have a Gandolfini back on HBO, so this is even more full circle than that. And I like, you know, I like what uh, David Chase said one time about The Sopranos. All I wanted to do was to get as close to cinema as I could. Yeah, we, Matt Zellersites, my co-author, and I, we talked to Chase at length for a new series of interviews for the book, and he was pretty candid about how, you know, he was fed up with TV, he didn't even want to make this as a TV show, he didn't think anyone would want to do it. When HBO agreed to make the pilot, he was rooting for them to pass on it so he could then, like, expand it into a movie and take it to the Cannes Film Festival. And it basically, he had to be dragged kicking and screaming into making what turned out to be one of the greatest and most influential TV shows ever made. Yeah, I think in your book, The Sopranos uh, Sessions, you talk about the fact that he is a little bit gruff, isn't he? I mean, when you interview him, because he's heard the question so many times before about, you know, the end of the show and all that stuff. Yeah, he's on the top two or three most challenging interviews I've ever had, because <laughs> most people, are pro- they're programmed to give, like, an answer to your question even if it's not exactly the one you were looking for. And Chase, just if he doesn't like your question or isn't interested in it, he won't answer or he'll challenge you, you know, why are you asking me that? What do you mean by that? So you have to go in very carefully, and we did like seven long interviews with him 
for this, and we had to come and loaded for bear, and we still got surprised a lot of the time, including when and how he wound up talking about the ending with us. When you interview some stars, you better know that if it's one of those people who is going to give short, even one-word answers, you better be ready for the next question right away. Yeah, and I went in, like, I was the primary interviewer for these, and I, you know, get super nerdy about TV, which I think you kind of have to to do what I do. And so right. I all of these, like, very obscure Sopranos trivia questions, you know, why did this happen? When did this happen? Blah, blah, blah. And half the time he just didn't remember because, you know, we're t- going back 20 years at least for some of this. And so I realized very quickly that the better answers were always more about just sort of motivation and creative instincts and what was he feeling when he did this. And so I just started to drop all the trivia stuff and go with the things that he was going to give good answers to. And I thought the interviews worked out splendidly well. You know, they exceeded my expectations, honestly. You know, I always wondered, too, what he uh, what his feelings were about doing the Rockford Files and what it was like to work with James Garner. Yeah, and it's it's funny because if you look at his career before he did The Sopranos, he wrote for what at the time were considered some of the great dramas ever made, The Rockford Files and Northern Exposure and All Fly Away. And he's just so dismissive of them because as much as he enjoyed working with those people, he felt that there was you know too many compromises in every case and you know too many network notes, too many things that were watered down or made too easy for the audience to understand. And that's what he was fighting against with every fiber of his being when he made The Sopranos, and it it worked. As a TV critic, you must love all of these channels now, Amazon and Hulu and all these other channels, that it's almost impossible to watch everything now, isn't it? This is my job, and I can only sort of scratch the surface of everything that's out there. There was over 500 scripted comedies and dramas in TV last year, and that's just too many. Even if I never wrote a word, if, if all I was trying to do from morning till night was watch TV, I would still barely get to a fraction of it. So it's, it's on the one hand, it's wonderful because there's never a shortage of things to write about. And on the other hand, it's terrifying because there's never a shortage of things to write about. Yeah, and I, I depend on guys like you to read your reviews because if it's not that great, I'm not going to go near it because I just won't have time to watch it. Yeah, that's I'm, a lot of what I'm dealing with these days is just people saying, what should I spend my time on because they have decision fatigue. You know, they're looking at the Netflix menu or the Amazon menu and there's a thousand choices and they just sort of pick something because they, they can't look anymore and then they're disappointed with what it is. So I try as hard as I can with what I write for Rolling Stone to like really point people to the cream of the crop. Alan, we talked about it before, the finale of The Sopranos. could have sworn that I heard someone say that David Chase did have an answer to what happened. With Journey's song, Don't Stop Believing, playing at the end, all Chase really could say is that it's optimistic, isn't it? I mean, I think it's, it's optimistic, but it's also, it's a pessimistic scene. You know, we talked about it in the book, and all of that, that's transcribed in the back of it. The scene is really, the song is optimistic, but the scene is kind of about death, whether or not Tony actually dies, whether or not the guy in the members-only jacket comes out of the bathroom or shoots him or whatever. Yeah. The scene is about this idea of, like, fragile mortality, and it could happen at any moment. You know, you, you're just watching a parallel park the car, but it's done in such a way that it's the most terrifying thing that's ever been televised. It's, 
It's yeah. an extraordinary thing. What, whatever you decide happened or didn't happen in that scene, the emotion of it is unmistakable. I'm one of those people who liked the fact that it went to black and, and you were left to your own imagination what happened there. It was almost kind of like the ending of the Blair Witch Project, I guess, where, oh, you see that one flash at the end there and you have to kind of decide what happened yourself. I like that. Yeah, and it, The Sopranos did that a lot. You know, they didn't bring back the Russian. They didn't bring back Furio. Melfi says no when Tony asks if anything's bothering her in the episode where she gets attacked, and they never bring up the rapist again for the most part. So it's a, the show didn't want to hold your hand. The show wanted you to do the work, and if you did the work, the rewards were so much greater. Speaking of nerdy stuff, I like the fact that you were originally a TV writer for the Star-Ledger in New Jersey, and that is the newspaper that's at the bottom of Tony Soprano's driveway. Yep, it was. They reached out to us before the pilot was even made to get help like producing those fake newspapers. So we were sort of tipped off to this show's existence and the fact that it was going to be a big deal, at least for our readership from the beginning. And it turned out one of our editors, uh, Mark Diano, had been uh, one of Jim Gandolfini's freshman like dorm mates at Rutgers. And remember that dent that Gandolfini had in his forehead? Yeah. That very distinctive... Uh, Mark put it there. They were like forcing <laughs> around in the dorm with dark guns, and Mark slammed a door in Jim's face, oh and he had to God. take him to the emergency room to get stitches afterwards. We were very connected to the show from the beginning, which, you know, right place, right time. You know, like you're you know, the rock critic for the Liverpool Daily Post in 1962 when the Beatles are coming up. Your book, which was entitled, uh, another book that you did, TV the Book, I have to ask you before I let you go, I'm always interested in lists. Can you give me your top five of uh, the best shows ever? And I know that's always kind of a, you know, kind of subjective. Yeah, so Matt, Matt zoller and I, who did The Soprano Sessions, we wrote this book a couple years ago where we ranked the 100 greatest American shows of all time. Yeah. And if I'm remembering right, it was The Simpsons was number one, The Sopranos was number two, The Wire was number three, Cheers was number four, and Breaking Bad was number five. And we'd used like a whole convoluted scoring system where initially those five shows were all tied for first, and we had to figure out a way to break the tie. And Matt argued very strongly for The Sopranos. I argued for The Simpsons. I ultimately <laughs> won. But having rewatched The Sopranos for this book, I'm having some second thoughts. I think it's probably still The Simpsons, but the best part of doing this book was getting to watch Sopranos again and realize how well it holds up and just how influential it was to everything that TV is now today. I've thought about uh, re-watching it myself, and I guess I'm going to have to now, especially uh, after reading your books. The Simpsons, though. I mean, I'm a fan of The Simpsons, but I, I don't know if I would have put... What was your criteria, if you could tell me that, in just about a minute? Okay, it was we were looking for like creativity, uh, you know, influence, consistency, you know, great storytelling, all of that. And the idea was... The Simpsons did more things better for longer than anybody else. It, regardless of how you feel about the show for the last 15, 20 years, its first decade, it's the greatest comedy ever, and the distance between it and the second best comedy is much greater than the distance between, say, The Sopranos and The Wire, um, you know, or The Wire and The Sopranos, whatever you want to do. It just it did more things, it's, and it has more influence over comedy, but holy heck, was The Sopranos great when I watched it again. The Many Saints of Newark, do we have any kind of a starting date on that? Um, they're still casting. You know, they cast uh, James Gandolfini's son, Michael, to play young Tony, so that's what's happening right now. I don't know exactly when it's going to go into production. The, the very last interview we did with David Chase, he alluded to the idea that he had tried to sell it to HBO, and they said no for some reason that he couldn't get into. Really? But now it's going to be a movie, and it's, you know, going to be this nice full circle thing. The, the 
like the Journey song says, it goes on and on and on. Well, Alan Sepinwall's Sopranos book, The Sopranos Sessions, available at all your favorite uh, spots, Amazon, Barnes & Noble. Great talking to you, Alan. I'd like to do it again sometime. My pleasure, anytime. All right, buddy. Thank you. Well, I can't wait to see David Chase's film prequel of The Sopranos called The Many Saints of Newark. And by the way, it looks to have a great cast. That is the end of this episode of The Fake Show. I'm Jim Tofty, reminding you that I'm Jim Tofty, and I'll see you next time. Take The Fake Show with you at thefakeshow.com, SoundCloud, and at iTunes. There are ways to make certain things pay, though I'm dressed in the